I want to ask as we prepare ourselves for this moment, which is a sacred thing in God's church, to come before him and to share the bread and the cup, which are symbols of his body and his blood, which was given for us uh, to prepare us. Um, I'd like to ask you to turn again to two places in the Bible, um, Luke 22 and Acts chapter 1. Luke chapter 22 and Acts chapter 1. We're actually going to start with Acts, so you can keep that one open and, and keep your finger in, in the Luke 22 passage. Let me, uh, let me pray once again. Father, I know that there are a lot of tired spirits here from celebrations of our, of our nation's birth, and we're thankful so much for the blessings that you have granted us. I do pray that you would grant us the spirit this morning to to hear your word and to humble ourselves before it and, and not miss or lose an opportunity to hear you speak and to hear um, your word and to have our lives changed. Father, we are indeed deeply thankful for many of the great things that you have given to us. Uh, we live in a land of great prosperity. We live in a land uh, where we worship in relative freedom um, without fear of persecution, at least not in the physical sense, and we're just thankful for that. For as long as we have that, we are thankful. And even if the day comes when we don't have that, we will still be thankful, for we know that you are good all the time, in all things, in every place. Father, I pray that you would grant us this morning the awareness to know that the evil one lurks. I pray that you would protect us. I know that he is at work in this body and uh, the greater body of Fairfield, doing his best to create doubt and to stir bitterness, to destroy marriages, to destroy churches. And so, Lord, we pray that you would protect your people, but we also pray that you would purge your people and continue to do your work of renewing, that you would give us greater faith and deeper dependence, a, a desperation for more of you and, and to have our lives radically altered by the, by the power of the gospel and the power of your spirit working in our souls, in our hearts, our affections, in our minds. So Lord, I pray in these moments that we have to share your word that you would come in power through it and that you would allow us the ears to hear your truth in a fresh way, in a vibrant way, in a way that brings life to the soul. In Jesus' name I pray. <coughs> Amen. Well, several months ago, we had um, told you that we would like to hear some of the stories that, that maybe God has uh, allowed you to experience. It could be um, how God has used you to shape another person's life or how um, God has used you to talk to somebody about Jesus or how the Spirit of God is working in you. And so we created this email address called stories at eparkway.com, and, uh, and we have enjoyed as a staff those of you who have responded, but there's one in particular that I would like to read to you as to how the Spirit of God is moving in one of our sister's lives, and I'll keep her name anonymous, because I found it tremendously encouraging and also insightful, and so I wanted to, to share it with you. And I'm just going to quote her words. It's somewhat edited uh, to shorten it, but this is what she, she wrote. She says, I get to talk to a lot of people. It used to be that I would ask a couple of questions, listen to their concerns, and say, I'll pray for you, and then walk away, and often then forget the whole thing. But God spoke to my heart and said, 
No. Pray with them right now. Bring them to my throne right now. Her old way of praying is to say, hey, I'll pray for you and walk away and oftentimes forget. Now, after talking and listening to someone, I've learned to say, would it be all right if we talked to God about this? Then quietly, head to head, using simple words, I thank God for his awesomeness, acknowledge that he knows all about the issue and this person, ask him to reveal himself through his help, and thanked him in advance for his concerning grace. Then I followed with a big hug. I've prayed with my neighbor in the front yard over his job loss, my sister over the phone about medical tests, with my friend in a grocery store aisle about her children, with my husband's co-worker in front of City Hall um, about a sudden death in her, in her family. Sometimes it's with a believer, but often it's with an unbeliever. I mean, I have to stop right there. It's just like willing to pray in front of City Hall in a grocery aisle. Whenever someone shares a concern, rather than putting it off, she prays. Um, and she goes on and writes, when praying with my husband's coworker, it opened the door for more talks. And my jobless neighbor, the one she prayed for, um, knocked on my door when he got a new job with a thankful heart, truly touched and amazed that God would care. The Holy Spirit's urging has pushed me out of my shy comfort zone, enabled me to share God's word and love in a way in an available way. And I'm hoping for more opportunities to do it. End of letter. Now, there are a thousand different things that are, that are encouraging about that particular note. Okay, maybe not a thousand, but there are a lot. One of the things that I find very wise and insightful in this particular story is the concern to learn to pray or the wisdom of praying in the present moment and not putting it off to the future, which many of us do. And then, unfortunately, we forget. But to take advantage of a moment, the present moment, when someone shares a concern or an issue, believer or unbeliever, and be able to say, can I, can I pray for you? And then to pray. Not only does it ensure that we actually pray for them, but I think it connects to people and shows them in a tangible way we love them. And in the end, when God then answers, it shows our faith to be real. What an amazing opportunity to reach out. I mean, I think that's a good word for us to Next time someone shares a concern with you, if you were a follower of Christ, rather than put off the prayer, stop. Have a little bit of courage. Don't care what anybody else thinks at the steps of City Hall or in the grocery aisle. And say, can I pray for you? And then pray. And watch what happens. That's, that's an encouraging, I think, word for us. I also think it's encouraging because you see in her, the last part of her note, she wants to do it more. And that's how kind of prayer works. It's when you pray and you want to pray. And then you see it working in people's lives, and you see answers like a man getting a job. Well, then it, it inspires you to pray more. It's, it reminds me of one of those games that actually it was the first video game my parents brought home. Um, it was Pong. You remember Pong? It's the most absurd game you've ever seen. It's two little paddles, and it's this little white lines that go up and down and shoot this ball back and forth. And the, the faster, or longer it goes, the faster it goes. That's kind of prayer. It's like you pray, and then it... God answers, and then it has a way of getting faster and increasing one's desire and passion actually to pray. And that's what I see going on in, in her life, is that she is stirred with a greater hope, with a greater desire to take more opportunities to pray because she wants to see God work. It's, it's one of the marks, I think, of, a, of, a, of God's spirit alive in a, in, a, in a disciple and filling a disciple is that impulse to pray, that, that desire, the want to pray, the sense of need, the desperation to pray. Now, I don't have to tell you that um, the book of Acts is a 
book about the church that's full of power. And it is also a church that is always praying so that spirit and prayer, or should I say the fullness of God's spirit or the power of God's spirit, is often seen where people not just do the act of praying, but they are compelled by a sense of desperation to get on their knees and pray. And that is the subject to which we turn this morning in preparation for communion, is, 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 is prayer. Um, in specific, the pow, pow, God's power in prayer, spirit and prayer. And since it's a, a big subject, I just want to look at one little tiny facet, one I think that deals where our issues are more than others, and that is motivation. I think most of us, if not all of us, would agree or affirm that we should pray. And most of us, if not all of us, would acknowledge that we ought to pray. Our lack is not a knowledge of ought to pray, but rather our lack is the motivation of want to pray, need to pray, desire to pray, compulsion to pray. So how is it that we can transform from that feeling of I ought to pray, but I don't, to I need to and want to pray because I'm compelled to? How is it that that transformation can take place where people no longer just feel like they ought to and then feel guilty when they don't, to I need to, I want to, I desire to? And I, One of the things that I think I'd like to answer that, at least in part, this morning, how is it that we can be moved to want to, desire to, compelled to, and sent a need to pray? One of the things that the Spirit uses to incite a motivation, a compulsion, I find taught in a tremendous contrast between what we find at the end of Luke versus what we find in the beginning of Acts. Now, mind you, if you've been following us, you'll know that um, I've said on a couple of occasions that Luke and Acts belong together. Same author, two volumes telling the same exact story. And one of the things that comes out, I think, undeniably, when one reads both of them together, is a tremendous contrast between the disciples in Luke chapter 22 versus how those disciples look in Acts chapter 1. That is a, a tremendous transition takes place. So those are those two parts. In Acts 1, we come to a a group of disciples, uh, the 12 disciples along with some others, who are praying. They're constantly praying. Now just to set the context of that particular chapter, chapter 1, once again, it's um, Jesus has basically left them with some instructions that that before the Spirit comes, they are to wait in Jerusalem. So those are the instructions. You are to wait until the Holy Spirit is given, and of course he's given in chapter 2. So there's this gap between Jesus leaving and the Spirit coming, and during that time we find or read in verse 14 of chapter 1, they all joined together constantly in prayer. In other words, there was a sense of fervency, urgency, and constancy of their prayer life. And they were doing it all together. It wasn't just people fragmented going to their own prayer closets. They were praying, joined together, constantly praying. And since Peter takes the leadership at the end of chapter one, I think it's safe to assume that he probably led this charge in prayer in anticipation for the giving of the spirit of God, which happens in chapter two. So the the, the people of God are praying earnestly and constantly. And the result, of course, is Pentecost. Now it was Pentecost was a promised thing, but I think 
they also prayed for it. Promises of God do not deny or do not cancel out or need to pray for those things. But they're praying, and that's the picture of the disciples in chapter 1. They are constantly praying. But what I want you to notice is that Pentecost follows this time of tremendous prayer. In other words, Pentecost does not explain why these disciples are on their knees praying. Now, that's a picture of, if you will, a model church. A church that is going to receive tremendous power is a church that is joined together constantly in prayer. And Peter, I think, is leading the charge. A very different picture emerges in Luke 22. And in terms of chronology, this is just roughly seven weeks before. So the picture in Acts 1 is of a group of disciples who are praying earnestly. Now, the picture that emerges from Luke chapter 22, just 50 or so days earlier, is a prayerless group of disciples. We meet Peter, the same Peter who probably led the charge in this constant prayer, and we see in him a spirit of self-reliance and self-assured self-confidence because he says to the Lord in verse 33 of chapter 22, he says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. He's, He's devoted. He's... He's giving his promise to the Lord that he will stick with him through thick and and through thin. And the other Gospels tell us that the other disciples said the same thing. That is, they were resolved. They were resolved to stick with Jesus. But that resolve is going to be put to the test. Their devotion, their promise to the Lord Jesus Christ was going to be tested in a severe way. And on that very night that they made these claims, we read in verse 39 that Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Here you have the Son of God, and this also is a contrast. The Son of God, the creator of heaven and earth, albeit in human weakness. You have him on the very night of his arrest, facing the culmination of his mission, namely to suffer. And in preparation for that, we find the Son of God on his face. And there are lots of feeling words that are a part of this little text. He is in anguish. So his prayer comes out of an anguish of heart. He is praying earnestly. And when God doesn't answer in the affirmative, at least that's what I would assume, he goes back and he prays more earnestly. So he is on his face. The Son of God is on his face on the night that he would be tested. And it's interesting to me that Luke records, I believe, what no other gospel records. And that is, in response to this prayer, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him so that he receives strength from heaven as he prays. 
Meanwhile, disciples who had just promised out of their own resolve to stick by Jesus are sleeping. They are not on their face. They are not preparing. And it has catastrophic results. Because as soon as, and you know the rest of the story, Judas comes with a band of soldiers and they arrest Jesus. And we find just how much their confidence, their resolve lasts, how long it lasts. That is, it's crushed like broken glass. Uh, Eleven of the, ten of the disciples scurry like rats off of a ship. They, they abandon Jesus. And Peter, the same one who leads in prayer in Acts chapter 1, this constant prayer in the community, we find him doing the unthinkable, namely denying Jesus. Elsewhere, Jesus says, to deny him is to have him denied before the Father, which is a serious crime, which, by the grace of God, Peter was forgiven of. Nevertheless, we find him breaking like glass. And that particular night, again, can you see the contrast between Acts 1 and Luke 22? Luke 22, the disciples with a sense of self-reliance and self-confidence promised to Jesus, but then they remain prayerless. And as a result, in their human strength, they are broken, completely broken. They shatter like glass. As opposed to Acts chapter 1, we find the same disciples, only 50 days later, resolved to get on their knees and pray constantly. A prayerless picture and a prayerful picture. And Pentecost does not explain the transformation because it happens in chapter 2, not chapter 1. So what happened between the prayerless disciples and the prayerful disciples? The prayerless disciples that ended in defeat and tragedy versus the prayerful disciples that ended with Pentecost, namely the Spirit of the living God being poured out on them. It's a lesson, an important lesson that I think emerges from those two stories coming to light in the same story. And namely, that where there is a spirit of self-reliance, self-confidence, self-dependence, there is little to none, no prayer, which means there is little to no power. Because we don't sense the need for it. Where there is a sense of self-reliance that I can do this, then prayer evaporates. And with prayer being evaporated because we don't feel the need for it because we're self-reliant, therefore there is no power and there is in the end defeat. Now that, in my thinking, is one of the great sins and perhaps one of the great explanations as to why in our particular culture we have a prayer service and there's meager attendance. Because there is in our brawny American culture that prizes human strength and individuality, there is no sense of need and desperation because we are self-reliant and therefore hardly prayerful. And then it's not surprising that the church lacks power because there is that self-reliant spirit. It is, it is a serpent, 
a self-reliant spirit, is a serpent that slithers around, hisses around, speaking in our ears, telling us, you can do it. I can do it. By the flux of your own muscle, by the use of your own finances, you can do it. And so with that sense, whether we acknowledge it or not, that sense of self-reliance then robs us of the desperation we need to lead us to pray, which then leads to God's power being made known and evident and and poured out in our lives. You could also put that in, in the positive, and that is to say that when God brings our self-reliance to an end and replaces it with this desperate dependence upon divine power, then we'll find ourselves wanting, desiring, and needing to pray. And then out of that desperate or desperate, of dependence and prayer that comes out of it, we will see and experience the power of God flow in our lives again. That's, I believe, an important the lesson that the disciples of 22, Luke, who in their self-reliance were prayerless, and in their prayerlessness they were defeated, transformed them into disciples of Acts chapter 1 where we find that they have learned the lesson. Human strength, human strength is not trustworthy. It is not trustworthy. And out of that sense of weakness, they got on their knees and prayed. And as a result, God's power fell. That is a lesson of prayer as that one of the things I think that the Spirit uses to reignite a sense of motivation is to strip us of a self-reliant, self-confident, self-dependent heart and replace it with the desperation of a dependence upon the divine, on the power of God, and then and then we'll find motive to pray, and then we'll find God's power being unleashed in our lives. And what's equally interesting is how and what the Spirit used to bring them to that point. That the Spirit of God used their failure to teach them that lesson. It tells me that even their failure had a purpose, as does failure in our lives. That oftentimes God permits or brings failure brings us to a place where we're in circumstances where we're rendered utterly helpless so that we will learn that we just cannot do it. That is a unique perspective to have on one's own failure. That perhaps God has brought me to this place of complete defeat because I'm standing in my own strength. I never knew it. And he wants the best for me, so he's breaking me of that. He's pressing it into my experience. This a little reminds me of one of my children. One of my sons came up to me at the, uh, at the back of my car. I had bought a 50-pound bag of rock salt. And he said, I want to carry it. And it wasn't that articulate. And I said, you can't carry it. It's too heavy for you. He says, no, I can do it. I said, no, you can't. He said, yes, I can. And we had a little argument at the back of the car. And I said, okay, you want to carry it? By all means. And I placed the 50-pound bag in his hands and immediately dropped to the, to the street. 
And he realized at that moment that he couldn't do it and learned an important lesson. And it was part of what I needed to teach him, to put that burden in his hands so he could realize that he could not do it. Perhaps some of the things that we have been going through, you have been going through in terms of the circumstances we find ourselves in, which you can't get out of, you don't know how you're going to get out of, I'd be willing to say one of the purposes in that circumstance or in a a defeat or a sense of failure is so that you will be stripped of self-reliance and you will rediscover the desperation of dependence upon the divine and out of that begin to cry out to him again and out of that crying to receive to receive power. Most of us, however, do not see our circumstances or failures that way. A lot of the times, we don't see the hand of God moving, even in our failures. So we look at a failure in our life, and oftentimes we think, I just didn't give it enough effort. I have made huge mistakes financially, and so maybe I just need to dust myself off and and give it more effort. So that's what we do. It's not a response of faith, necessarily. So we get ourselves, dust ourselves up. We exert more energy, more will, only to find ourselves failing again, only to find ourselves saying, I've got to put more effort into it. So we dust ourselves off, get up, try again, only to fail. And then when we fail time after time after time, we blame God because either he's not good enough to give us the power to overcome it, or he's just not powerful enough. Or we respond with woe is me, and we melt into a pool of despair, which is not also a response of faith. But as the Lord allowed his disciples to enter into a prayerless night on the night of a massive testing, only to show that they would fail, showing them that the the timbers of human will are but rotten timbers. And they cannot support the weight of persecution or the weight of doing what God wants you to do. Only God can supply that kind of, that kind of strength and power. Only divine timbers can hold up the Christian life, not the timbers of bankrupt, rotten, diseased, Members of human strength. Have you ever thought that failure in your life has a purpose? And one of those purposes is that God will strip away your sense of self-dependence and that you will discover that only He has the power to help you to live. I know for me, over the last couple of weeks, I have had a family member who has told me that he does not like me. And some of the reasons he does not like me is, is because of things that I have failed in. And I've wrestled with that. And it's given me a, a, a measure of depression. And I've done almost everything I can think of in terms of words and deeds to show this person that I really do care. But I've come to the realization that I can't fix it. I can't fix it. And the only thing left, then, is to pray. The great mistake in all of that is that I thought I could fix it by myself before I prayed. Meaning I approached the whole issue with a self-reliant, self-dependent heart. 
The Christian faith shouldn't wait until tragedy strikes to realize I need God. But at each moment to recognize I have nothing without him. To live in desperation each moment before you get to the tragedy or to the failure. The disciples should recognize, hey, we're in for a test and there's no way we're going to make it. So we need to just be on our faces now depending on divine power. Because otherwise we are host. We are done. That is a, has to be a constant state of the mind. Something that I, I'm, I'm learning to include in my prayer life each morning is, Lord Jesus, will you strip me of any sense of self-accomplishment that I can actually accomplish anything that you want me to do with any eternal bearing whatsoever. And make that not just something I think and know, but make that something that I know by way of conviction so that I'm able in each moment to live in dependence and out of that dependence to pray more and ask God's help. Um, and then out of that, to see God's power actually supply. And, and it does work, and it's growing. What are the failures that you find yourself in, those areas? Do you recognize that God is doing a work in your life through those things? Your financial circumstances could be a marital situation, a relationship. could just be a, a parenting issue. You don't know how to get through to your child. You know what? Your child is in the hands of the Lord, and your child's heart is in the hands of the Lord. The best of the parenting that you can do will ultimately not be able to change that child's heart. Only God can. But it's only when we learn the lesson that they learned, and they had to learn it by way of failure, is that the self-reliant, self-confident spirit is what is at the heart of prayerlessness and powerlessness. But to recover that sense of I can't do this, but I know who can, and I'm going to be talking to him. When that transformation begins to happen, and I know it's a process, then we find, I think, once again, that impulse to pray. To know that we're nothing without him. We can accomplish nothing, as Jesus says, without being deeply connected with him and praying and relying upon his power. It's a principle that Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, when he said that it's when human strength is brought to an end that we discover the power of Christ in us, the power of God's Spirit. It's when human strength is brought to an end, when we recognize that our strength has been evacuated, it can do nothing, that my strength alone is a rotten, moldy timber that cannot support the weight of what God wants me to do. When I realize that in my heart, then I will find, we will find motive to pray, and we will find the power of God. So this morning, as, as we come to the Lord's table, I, I'd like to ask that you survey your life. What are the issues right now you're facing? Circumstances? Could be a circumstance. Could be a failure. Um, could be a sense of defeat. First of all, do you recognize that God is at work in that thing? And one of the things he's trying to do, he's trying to do in me, all of us, is he's trying to strip us and break us of those those weak reeds that we trust in so that we learn to depend upon him each day, each moment. And in that kind of a heart, we find the impulse to pray. And with that kind of a heart, we find power. Will you survey your life and just ask, Lord, what are these things that seem um, insurmountable? And Lord, will you show me that, 
they are not insurmountable to you. But help me to trust you fully and to abandon like a sinking ship my own human weak strength. And then we will find the power of Christ resting upon us. And that's what this table is about. It's about God doing what we could never do for ourselves, namely dying in our place. But it's also, this table also points to the cross, which was the door through which the Spirit of the living God came. Um, and it is his power on which we must rest. Each of our problems must be addressed in and through him because he is the almighty Spirit of God. So this morning as you come, will you pray that the Lord would begin the work of stripping you of your self-reliance. Look at your failures and your defeats as part of what God is using to bring that you to this place. And then just surrender yourself to him in worship this morning. Most of you know how we do this. There's two cups on each of these tables, and we just ask that you tear off a piece of the bread, and you can um, dip it and take it back to your seat, or you can just pray if you want at the steps, and just give your heart to the Lord. Um, Again, I want to just clarify this meal is for the believers, those who actually follow Jesus. It doesn't make sense for someone who doesn't follow him to come to this because it's uh, an expression of our faith. Um, And with that, I also want to say that I'm going to have elders up here, and if you want to be prayed for, I mean, some of those issues... You might be struggling with, you think you can't get over. It might be an issue of anger, could be bitterness, could be lust, could be just I need physical strength and I don't have it. Um, they are here to pray for you, and we believe God works through the prayers of other people. So humble yourself and allow us the joy and privilege of being able to uh, pray for you. So as the music plays, uh, will you come? Father, I pray that you bless this time, bless this bread in this cup. This is a, a meal, a holy meal with you and with each other. I'm celebrating the oneness of this body, but also our oneness with you. Thank you for the cross through which you gave us the power to live. Will you humble us and strip away from us, strip away from us our senses of self-confidence and pride and and the arrogance that gets in the way and saps our prayer life and therefore saps our power life. In Christ's name I pray, amen.